This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon or early evening. Um, Welcome to Building Abolition Now, Planting Seeds, Growing Abolitionist Futures. Uh, My name is Corey Lita, and I'm a member of Critical Resistance, a member-led organization committed to the fight for abolition internationally. And I use she and they pronouns. And I'm joining you from Portland, Oregon, which is on the lands of the Multnomah, Catholomet, Clackamas, Bands of the Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who've made their homes along the Columbia River. Um, This panel is brought to you by the newly launched Abolition Now Network, of which CR is a member. Um, The Abolition Now Network is a formation of key organizations in the abolitionist movement that have come together to facilitate our collective exchange of knowledge, language, strategy, and analysis. And our goal is to both strengthen our own practice, but also to have a network that can strongly and quickly respond to issues as they arise to assert an abolitionist perspective on a national stage. So for this uh, panel discussion, um, we will have community members um, and myself who will be discussing the work of building abolitionist infrastructures, lessons learned, and visions for the future. So I'm excited to be here today with Solange Azor from BYP 100 and Miriam Porras um, from Poder uh, Emma. And uh, I would like to go ahead and hand it over to Solange to maybe introduce yourself a little bit more. Um, I'll start by just sharing that, you know, Solange is a full spectrum community doula and organizer living in Lenapoking, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, and they organize with the NYC chapter of the Black Youth Project 100 and is a board member with the New York Abortion Access Fund. So if you could introduce yourself and then I'll have Marianne. Thank you, Corey. Hi, everyone. I'm Solange. I use they, them, and she pronouns. Um, yeah, like Corey mentioned, I currently live in Renape Hoking in Brooklyn, New York, and I do a lot of different things, but today I'm going to be focusing a little bit on the work that the BYP 100 New York City chapter did um, around mutual aid and the mutual aid project that we worked on this year. And for those who don't know, BYP 100 or Black Youth Project 100 is an abolitionist youth organization um, that organizes through a Black queer feminist lens. Thank you. And then we have Miriam here with um, Poder Emma, who lives in Asheville, uh, North Carolina, developing cooperatives and co-creating alternative spaces out of the jail system. I'd love to um, uh, hand it to you to talk a little bit more about your work as well. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much. I use um, she, her pronouns. I live in Nashville, North Carolina. I work with Poder Emma as um, we are um, 
grassroots organization. Uh, we focus on advocacy to prevent displacement of our communities and also to develop uh, worker uh, cooperatives, real estate and housing cooperatives. You're on mute. <laughs> Thank you, sorry. I was trying to unmute and muted myself. Um, I was saying I'm really excited for this conversation because I think there's just so much to talk about within this you know, topic. And we have some questions um, to go through together, but also want to just name that we'll likely have some time for Q&A. So if there's questions that come up, feel free to um, put those in the chat. So um, yeah, I'd love to just start by talking about um, how you think about safety within an abolitionist framework um, and what is your vision of safety and how are you working towards that vision? And I'm curious if either of you have anything you want to share. I can also speak from CR's perspective, but would love to start with both of you. Okay, I can go ahead. Um... So safety, um, it's, it's, I think it's uh, for me is to be able to be who I am without fear. Um, I have experienced since I was really little, uh, what does it feel to be safe and what it's not. And uh, for me, like any system that it's punitive, isn't safe. I have always feel more safe when I am around community members and um, around people that I trust. Yeah, I think um, when I think about safety, I, I feel like my vision of safety is waking up every day and knowing how I'm going to access like my material needs, food, healthcare, shelter, um, and knowing that it will be consistent and guaranteed for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it also, you know, it's not just on the individual level. And what I think I, I really love about the abolitionist framework is that safety is also considered on a community community level um, is I think, you know, you can, to me, like safety is the ability to not only support myself, but know that I can support my community and that my community will support me too. Um, so also thinking about, you know, access to these material needs on a community level too, right? So even if I have, you know, insurance, I have all, you know, all the, all the things that I currently need, if the people around me and the people who are you know, I'm looking to for support don't have those things or denied those things, then I'm, you know, my safety is limited. I'm not actually as secure as I would want to be. So I think I think about it on an individual level and, and also on, um, yeah, a community-wide and interdependent um, model of safety. Yeah, thank you. And I can share a little bit I think from CR's perspective and from my own work as someone who thinks a lot um, and works within transformative justice work that, you know, it's it feels like there's multiple pieces to it. Right. There's a piece where it's about addressing our um, our basic needs. Right. To be able to move out of survival and have our needs met and really be able to support each other and having our needs met. Um, and I also think it's also about challenging our ideas of like what is on the other end of safety, like what makes us unsafe and thinking about, you know, what are the the 
logics that we use to like decide that something is unsafe or isn't. And I think some of that's around, you know, whether it's like who's perceived as unsafe and who makes us safe um, and really working through that. But, you know, I think, um, you know, when I think about my vision for safety, it really does come down to that collective community self-determination um, to be able to assess you know, for that neighborhood, that block, that city, you know, that community, like what actually safety means outside of what we've been told safety to mean and get to really explore that together and think about the resources and the structures and institutions and such that can that can help us feel safe um, and respond to things that don't in a way that is outside of policing, outside of prisons um, and the prison industrial complex. Um, so our next question, and Solange, if you're up for it, to talk a little bit more about the um, technicals around, um, uh, I'm looking at my question here, like what, what should folks know in other cities who want to try and replicate more about the work that you do? So maybe hearing a little bit more about the work that you do and kind of more of that design process, the, the ways in which you all have started to address, um, you know, this abolitionist framework of the future we want to live in. Yeah, I can definitely share some insights. Um, yeah, I guess I first want to say that, you know, I'll, I'll share a bit about our structure and our process um, and talk about, you know, our challenges and success highlights. Um, but really, I feel like the most successful projects like this are really specific to a community. So I hope that there are lessons and frameworks that are helpful. But I feel like a big disclaimer of just like, you know, you're going to have to figure out how this works with your um, specific community. And yeah, and like there are things that worked for us that won't work in other places. Um, and I'm trying to think about how I want to structure this. And I think I'll, I'll probably move chronologically and just talk a little bit about, you know, how we made decisions and then share some reflections and make some offerings. Um, yeah, so <laughs> really, you're going to need a lot of spreadsheets, probably. Um, but, you know, when, we, when this is first coming together, we had this like, mutual aid project uh, that started off as a response to the pandemic and the city shutting down and not really offering the resources that, you know, people needed to deal with the mass change that was happening. Um, and so it was a coalition project. So there were three organizations involved and then several, you know, floater organizers. Um, and part of that decision was thinking about, you know, outreach to communities that we didn't have the scope or the connections with. So we partnered with an organization that um, works with undocumented Black folk and, and migrant Black folk and an organization that partner or that works um, and organizes around sex workers and decriminalizing sex work. Um, and, you know, that helped to build up our capacity and also helped to build our reach. And we didn't really establish set roles in the beginning. We sort of let roles come naturally as we figured out who was going to be involved in this and also what different strengths and needs were. And so eventually we did end up having like a steering committee and, you know, stewards of different parts of the project, um, which I'll go into more detail probably a little bit later about what that all looked like. Um, but really when we went into it, we just had a sense of like who was going to be involved and kind of a sense of what we wanted to do. We knew like all these mutual aid projects were cropping up. Um, 
And the next big step was just identifying need. And so really figuring out like, okay, well, this project's going to be focused on Black New Yorkers. What are Black New Yorkers currently lacking? What are we anticipating um, they're going to need with this pandemic? And, you know, we live in a, a world in a city where already Black people are denied access to the support and resources that they need to survive on a regular basis. So, you know, it, we sort of knew what you know we would need. Like it was like money, supplies, housing, and then asking ourselves like what things we have capacity to provide. Uh, so we started off with cash distribution because you're like, that'll be the easiest. This feels like kind of the most pressing need, like let's just get money out there. So we started off by just like fundraising, um, making graphics, being like, hey, we're just trying to raise a bunch of money. So starting to get the money as we then started trying to figure out how we were going to distribute it. And that was the whole process. And I think there are probably really helpful tools and resources out there now, but we, we learned a lot um, specifically with just like how to collect and distribute money and ran into a lot of problems with these, you know, I don't know what to call them, money distribution sites, I guess, like PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, you know, learning about caps, learning, you know, PayPal withheld our money for a really long time because it was like suspicious or something, you know, more ways that it's just hard to do this work because of the institutions that we are fighting against have been also trying to work with. Um, yeah, so... So we started off with the cash distribution and then we knew we wanted to do supply distribution, but we also knew that that was going to take a lot more strategy and process. So we got the cash distribution kind of going and then we slowly integrated, uh, not slowly, uh, we <laughs> integrated as quickly as we could the supply distribution. Um, and this was much harder than the cash distribution. Like it required a lot more pre-work in like identifying, okay, what when sorry backtracking so i guess the other big piece is just like how we connected to the people that we ended up working with and providing these resources and materials to and that was a combination of you know social media many people are on the internet and so we put out google forms we put out instagram tweets all that kind of thing and then we also thought about the people you know who don't have regular access to internet or for whom like those methods of like getting information are inaccessible um, so we also, you know, strategized around phone banking. And again, with like the community partners that we were with, we had access to some really helpful like phone banks, phone bank lists. Um, we, yeah, I think we, we flyered in some places as well. So a lot of like varied strategies, because again, we, in, in, in just like developing this whole project, one of the things that we really tried to return to was centering the most vulnerable people. And um, within the black community, obviously there's still many vulnerabilities. So um, yeah, so if, thinking about just like who was going to be able to access this service was a key part in that. Um, so yeah, returning back to the supplies in our Google form and outreach, one of the things we did was just ask like what is needed, like what supplies do you need, which was super helpful because there were so many patterns in the needs. You know, people were asking for medical supplies, people were asking for water um, and cleaning supplies pretty consistently. And then there were on and off asks around like groceries. So that was really helpful because especially at the time when it started in March, you know, there were 
lots things that weren't really available and not available quickly. So we had to do some strategizing around, okay, some stuff is going to take us two weeks, like getting masks, getting PPE, like that's going to be a uh, its own challenge. So what things can do we have access to now and how? And that also required a lot of, I think, creativity and imagination. Um, we, you know, talked about people making hand sanitizer. Um, and wow, my memory really, this was only like six months ago, but I'm still like, did we, I, I think we, I, I can't quite remember, but um yeah. At the time we had had a plan to like pay people to make hand sanitizer and then help us distribute it. And so like little creative things like that. And I, um, yeah. And then with the supply distribution, we ended up, I think one thing that we did very well was that we sort of distributed the, the, the work and the leaders in this work, if that makes sense. So um, with our supply distribution, even though cash distribution was sort of decentralized and it was just like kind of anyone who's involved in this, or we had a sector of people involved in the project who were regularly distributing cash supplies, we made very location-based uh, because, you know, if you're going to be delivering, you, you you need to be thinking about things like, okay, how far, who are going to be the delivery people? How far are they willing to go? So we broke it down by borough, uh, which also helped because, again, like the supply portion just requires a lot of like logistics. Um, and so it was helpful just to be like, this is the team that's going to be figuring out how to best do this in the Bronx. This is the team that's going to be figuring out how to best do this in Brooklyn. Um and then each supply, like supply distributions, I think looked a little bit different at every site. And I think that was a really helpful thing because it was like, you know, we're meeting the the, the needs and the limitations or the strengths of the, the locations that we're, you know, trying to try to provide these resources and goods with. Um, yeah. So we had cash and supplies and that was part of the, you know, the, 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 meeting the material needs of the communities and also doing the kind of like building work of abolition of how are we providing, how are we like inhabiting the practices that we want to inhabit in our vision of liberation right now? And how are we doing that outside of the state who clearly is not meeting our needs and you know likely will not meet our needs. So that was one part of it. And then the other part of it, which I think is also really important in mutual aid projects, which are an inherently political site was the sort of dismantling and like addressing the state directly. So we also had an organizing campaign going where we had, we created, again, using the, the just like our conversations with the people that we were working with, the survey that we had put out to really figure out, okay, these are the needs of Black Americans right now related to this pandemic. We created a list of statements, or we created a statement with a list of demands um, that included things like um, having, you know, defunding police, funding uh, more resources for, Black people in New York City. And um, yeah, and and then we like had a town hall, we went town halls. And so I think it was really helpful to have that like kind of dual strategy of, you know, building the infrastructure to allow people to like survive and not thrive, but survive in this current moment. Um, and really like start that practice of like, okay, no, this is the world, like these are our values, like how can we implement that now? Um, and then also like responding to the state and still organizing and putting pressure to um, have that systemic and structural change as well, uh, which I think is kind of the balance that is, is, is really important. Um, yeah. And then I think, I think I'm going to share maybe some reflections. I feel like I've been talking for a really long time and I'm like, I don't know how helpful it is to actually hear these back and forth. Like well, we did this no, and we did this great. and we did I'll this. Just quickly remind the slow down for our translators but other than that would love love to hear more 
Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I also am trying to be better about slowing down when um, there are translators. So thank you for that reminder. Um, but yeah, I think one definitely growth edge with this project was thinking about sustainability. And that's something that I feel like is a question that we should have asked in the, probably more intensely in the beginning of just like, how are we going to make this a sustainable project. And it was hard in part because we were kind of doing this like immediate response to this like wide scale crisis. And also, um, I think it was hard because we just didn't know how long and people had different understandings of how long that this pandemic was going to last. I think, you know, there are still a lot of unknowns and questions around that. So for us, it was like, let's just get people what they need right now. And I think it would have been really helpful if we had thought more about, okay, well, how can this go on for as long as it needs to go on and not making assumptions about what's happening? How can we, always going to need access to these sorts of resources. And there are great examples of mutual aid being these like long-term sustained projects that turn into, that like really change conditions for communities. Um, And then the last part about that too is like the community care of the people who are working on this. And this, yeah, I think, (laughs) and I'll probably talk about this later too, but um, we had an issue where you know, this was a big project. There were a lot of different collaborators and there ended up being like several or a couple of predators who, known predators who were involved. Um, and that ended up being really harmful for the people who were working on the project, the people who had volunteered with us. And it ended up being something that, you know, really, I don't want to say derailed because that, I don't know, that feels sort of reductive, but um, like it's something that we should have been far more proactive about too, is thinking about, okay, we are the people who are going to be working on this, organizing this. There are probably people who are going to be coming in. How are we ensuring our safety and our security as organizers too? Like, how are we making sure that we are taking care of ourselves, that we can take care of um, other people? How are we making sure, like what processes do we have in place on navigating conflict, harm, that happens among us or in this project. And those were not questions that I think we answered well enough or really at all in the beginning and definitely ended up hurting us in the end. So I think a big piece of guidance is probably to, you know, as much as it is, as much as you are trying to get people what they need and, you know, trying to literally save lives or support lives, it we have to do it in a kind of sustainable way. And we have to make sure that we're also not, replicating the same um, senses of like urgency, you know, that I think are put on us by capitalism, by ableism, by white supremacy that make us avoid really thinking about our own care and thinking about our collective care um, and thinking about our collective safety uh, because, you know, we're doing it for like the sake of, of, helping others or supporting others. Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of a lot. And I feel like I talked in circles, but I, I hope that was uh, helpful for people listening. No, I think that was great to hear so much. And maybe with the Q&A, people can follow up on pieces if they're curious. Um, I think what I really appreciated about listening to you describe all of that is it felt like really thinking about 
you know, whether it was at the end in reflection or the beginning in planning, but like how do our actions align with our values and how do our values align with the, the future vision that we have? And, you know, really thinking about, you know, listening to people and engaging with like what the actual needs are that people are raising and not just like what we think people need, but actually like working with each other to think through that. Um, which I love because I think it's just shifting that narrative that we have that, um, that we don't actually need to talk to each other to be able to figure this out. Right. Like we actually have to build together in really deep and meaningful ways and, um, relationships are, you know, so important for us to move out of this idea that we aren't in it together. Um, so thank you for that. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I won't, talk at length about any of CR's work, but I think, um, you know, for folks who maybe are curious about how we've done this from the lens of like health workers or because, you know, we've had the Oakland Power Projects and, you know, our work up in Portland has really been like thinking about mental health or, you know, um, thinking about like what communities need instead of being policed around like um, uh, gang policing and such like that. So we've got some great examples um, in our work and in some of our new toolkits that we're releasing as well. Um, Marianne, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about um, how your community came together to begin building for your long-term vision to become a reality. How, how did you come to design your projects? What were your influences and inspiration? Uh, well, um, I'm getting so excited now that I heard the work that it's been done in uh, Brooklyn. And it, it is really exciting because that's it's something that we do here. We started as the advocates in community organizing, organizers like assessing our community needs. Um, we uh, work with um, undocumented folks and low-income people and um, communities of color. So we started to build ourselves so like uh, the services and the systems that could uh, serve us instead of like, you know, make us feel that we are the needy and that we, you know, like that we don't have uh, any voice. And if we do, we have to exchange it for our, um, you know, like our freedom. So, um, we gathered our community, like we we uh, faced like racial profiling in, in like police enforcement at one point in our neighborhood were doing um, raids and uh, checkpoints in the middle of the day when our children were um, getting off the school bus. So we, we decided that we didn't want that, that we want to uh, face the this injustice and that we wanted to organize to ensure that the law enforcement would be out of our neighborhood and that that wasn't serving our community because um, anytime that something happened, it didn't serve us to call the police because we didn't feel safe. So we organized uh, to end racial profiling and to ensure that we had the programs that, we, that our community needed to be um, healthy and safe. So we saw that do cultural work and um, do like, um, like anything that 
our community were saying that we needed, that's what we would do. So we design programs around our community needs, like for health, for mental health, for cultural and for direct services. And then uh, we said, well, we have all of this, but what is our long-term vision? Where do we want to end? And we said, we want to steward the land where we live in. Um, we have been displaced once, um, the ones that we are immigrants, and we know that displacement not only happened to immigrant communities, but it happened to low-income people. So we live in a neighborhood that is multiracial and it's low-income people. So we decided that we wanted to um, to build a solidarity economy that we want to gather our resources and build a system that could possibly last forever for generations and that we can reclaim and that we can honor our ancestors because that it, it was how it was before. So um, we, we started um, in, in the way that we do um, our work is um, through participatory um, research through popular education, just from our own experiences, honoring all the experiences and all the voices in the room and asking community members uh, what they want, what they need, what their skills are, what their challenges are, and how we can move forward together, how we can take care to each other. So, like, as we build that, we, we recognize that violence and conflicts and all matters happen everywhere. But we wanted also to recognize that prison and punishment is not a solution for any community, but uh, that we need to build systems that can uh, see our humanity and can hold accountable the people who harm, but not to extract money or to make profit out of it. But, but we wanted to create a system that hold people accountable and, to, um, and that can build safety around because we want to have access and community that can resolve problems without you know, like this punishment that it that it, it causes a lot of harm to communities in many levels, and it's not bringing solutions. We're not we're not gonna like recover anything from someone who had hurt someone and just to make them less human. But at the same time, we want to recognize on the victim side that a process of healing needs to happen. And uh, we're exploring that and trying to systematize ways where we can approach a conflict resolution in a way that it's bringing us humanity and that it's not extracting money from our communities. And talking about inspirations, um, Paolo Freire, uh, popular education, it's the base here. 
and also um, the culture also of some uh, native cultures in Latin America and social movements um, around the world that um, you know have been fighting a long time to end this um, capitalism, capitalism like it, that it's ingrained in the um, jail system. So um, those are or, or inspirations to keep building and exploring these alternative systems. Thank you for that. And thank you for, you know, regrounding us in a very internationalist, you know, anti-imperialist lens on this too. Cause I think that's so important that we can't, we can't just think about like what's happening in our, you know, particular communities without connecting it to what's happening and what what has happened and the strength and, and models we have to turn to as well. Um, so thank you. Um, and I just, yeah, I really appreciated how you both really are speaking to, you know, the power of really moving outside of um, the frameworks that, that we've been told we have to use, right, or have to believe in or have to invest in and really thinking about what else can we create together that um, isn't just thinking about what we think we can do, but what we actually need and want. Um, so I'd love to hear from both of you on, you know, you a great segue towards the end there around what are some practices that you turn to when addressing harm between members of your community outside of police and policing? I don't know if either of you would like to start, maybe Solange, since um, we haven't heard from you in a minute. Yeah, I'm happy to start. Um, I mean, I feel like this is like the question, right? <laughs> like, what? Are, how are we addressing harm? Um, and I think, you know, there are some general practices that have been helpful. Uh, first is just, you know, knowing that there isn't one thing that's going to fix harm. You know, it's not going to be like, oh, we get rid of policing, you know, we're practicing non-carceral ways of addressing harm. And that's the thing that we're using. Like there, there's such a wide toolkit of, of practices that you can employ. Um, and then I think it also really like depends on context too. Like the way that I navigate harm with like my, you know, the people I live with or my family or my friends looks very different than maybe the way that I navigate harm with in, within like movement spaces, you know? So, um, I think it's, it's really important to also just like go into answering this question, knowing that the answer will likely change. Like there's always going to be probably a different answer, um, within like movement spaces, I think specifically, uh, yeah, I think, it's important first to just like understand the degree of harm that was happened. And um, BYP 100 National put out a really helpful um, toolkit that's like talking about conflict versus um, harm versus abuse. And I think that's a really helpful distinction because sometimes those things can get conflated. And I think that's when, you know, it's hard to really start a process of addressing harm when you're not even quite sure like what exactly what degree of harm there is, you know, and I think that really informs the way that you are meeting um, the harm. And, you know, the next important thing is like really making sure that whoever has been harmed is safety is safe and like prioritizing their safety, their security and healing over, you know, everything. And then moving into like, how are we, how are we going to address this? And I feel like there are sort of two things that I think about. The first is like the proactive things that you can do. Um, and in college, I did a lot of work around like consent education. And one of the things that we really tried to drill down is like, there's so much preventative things that can, you know, be put in place to, um, minimize the chance that conflict, harm or abuse happens, you know, and, um, 
yeah. So like really think about like what things can you do specifically to make that happen? I think it probably, again, I feel like it will look really different based on like the organizations and, you know, our chapter right now is really in the process of navigating this and trying to answer these questions ourselves. And I think what it's looked like for us is like, knowing when and how to ask for help. Um, and we're looking at, we're in a position where there, you know, we know that there are these really great processes for transformative justice, restorative justice, healing justice. Um, and we know that there are places to turn to who can provide those services or toolkits if we, we need them. Um, and then we also know like, you know, we're limited, like we're not, like we do not have the capacity to figure this out on our own. So we know we're gonna have to bring someone in. Um, I think also transparency is really helpful to, you know, when um, it came out that there were, you know, these predators that were working with the mutual aid project, um, the first thing, you know, that felt really important to happen was just to like communicate that out. And I think both like as a survivor and as somebody who, you know, like organizes, it feels much better to know somebody in and, and know somebody. Yeah, I mean, just to be honest and upfront about people's histories. And if people have a history of abuse, if people have a history of like being a predator, the reason that they're able to continue those things is because nobody really talks about it. And so I think, yeah, a big part of um, harm is just like open discussion, which maybe sounds kind of cliche. Yeah. So I guess my takeaways are like having a very wide and varied tool, a wide, very toolkit centering the person that was harmed. um, And then, yeah, asking for help when you need it as sort of starting places. Um, yeah, I mean, Miriam, you have specifics or want to add on to that? Yeah, Miriam, would love to hear your thoughts on this. I think this is where it gets really complex because we live in a world that globally it's under capitalism and neoliberalism. And before that, we came from systems, colonialism that was rooted in violence and exploitation and it, that happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's, that's the part that, that it's what we see in being replicated over the centuries. At the same time, we have a hope, a hope that we have also practices that were, that were not that violent and that, and that people that resisted and had the resilience to keep other practices. So for me, I think I have like my individual path where I can find where I was um, before, um, like in my childhood in, in a different country and how and I how I am right now as an adult in a you know in a foreign country where I been building my family and I have children now. So it's, it's sometimes it's kind of complex to, you know, like it's a lot of things that you have to navigate when you're out there in the world. But I think the first thing is recognize that we are fighting a whole system that has a lot of tools to um, oppress us all the time. And that we are, you know, like trying to, dismantle that system and um it has many phases so on a personal level i think because my identities 
I had always experienced violence in many levels. And the thing that I know how to do was react and defend myself against any situation that could put me in a violent situation. Or like hearing every day the being microaggressions, like the natural thing coming out of me was like holding someone accountable because, or that individual, because um, the harm that you carry with every day, like you get, um, you know, like told that you are less or that you, or that you, is something wrong with you or that you don't belong or that you're a criminal just because the way you look, the way you speak causes a lot of harm. So, but um, on the movement level, I saw that although like it's a great advocacy to dismantle the system and to, you know, abolish the system, I saw that we were replicating some of the practices of what we're trying to dismantle and that we still have a long way to go to rethink what are the systems that are not punitive that we want to use for for it. And so at the beginning and my identity as a woman of color and immigrant, the persons who like the targets were like white people, hold accountable, hold them accountable. And I'll be center because I am the one, if I get harmed, you know, like we're going to hold accountable that person. And and then I find out that it wasn't um, something that really healed my my that could heal that situation it empowered me for a little bit but then I feel like well crap like you know like I recognize all the systems but it's something it's not working out in a way that should be working because it's so punitive um and then I realized because I am a cisgender person then then the the flip of the coin was when I was in um in a spaces that were um, LGBTQ people and that little thing that I know and the much privilege that I have as a, as a cisgender person. So then I felt the other way around, you know, because constantly I am harming those people because I have a privilege and because I'm undereducated on that topic. So I also experience how it feel that you are the one who harms and that the other people people, person at center. And I could recognize and I could hold that, you know, you know, recognize that, that I have a privilege and in, in that is true. But then I thought my thinking is still, and I'm still developing this thinking and just how to walk in the world where the, the world recognizes what are the system, the systems that are oppressing me every day. And how am I an oppressor to other to others too? So that's something that I'm still trying to figure out. But what I what I I saw was that practices where dialogue around centering only one's feelings where the the best the best uh, tool to use and that we have to create to be more creative around like um, still developing a way where we can um, where we can stop that punitive that punitive tool 
And um, at the personal level, I think, um, like, with my family and community also, like, it's different. You know, like, there are situations where I have to navigate also my identities and my privilege. And I have to make it in a way that, for me, my takeaway is um, it's it's to hold in a balance of not to break the dialogue. Or like not to get to the line where it feels unsafety and, and, you know, like something a little more crosses the line where instead of being helpful, it's going to harm more. Um, and, and that's difficult. Um, and I live in a little co-op that are for families. And like how, how do you, like how we have, you know, like confront or fears around uh, maybe some uh, safety issues around our neighborhood are one thing that we always in dialogue, you know, like if it's a break-in, if it's somebody that is under uh, drugs uh, walking into our property, you know, all of those things. But I I had to realize that everybody, all persons, even um, like people who probably is dealing with violence or doing something like drugs or, or like some sort of that, the first step is not calling the police. So like, because we don't know yet what that person is dealing with, but at the same time, we know that probably is unsafety for ourselves and for our children. So I think it's a fine line. What we have been doing in my little co-op, it's like, if something happens and, and we feel that it's unsafe, we, we have like our, our phone lines. We're going to call each other. We're going to call the resources out there in the community before we call in the police. So that, that's one tool that we are using right now. Thank you both so much. I mean, it's making me think about a lot of different things. Like one, you know, this idea of like people living in your neighborhood who... Like, why would you call the police on someone who actually may not be doing anything to you, right? It's just like the way we think about, you know, the danger of someone. And I think it's so important to like call on the question of like letting people just live their lives, right? Um, and and really thinking about like, when are we actually in danger of something versus perceived? Um, and yeah, I, you know, I think a lot about... Um, you know, folks who do transformative justice work talk a lot about how this is not a scalable thing. It's not something that we can like scale up and be doing accountability processes, you know, on a huge institutional level, nor should we. Um, But the work that could be happening instead is really more about like, how do we prevent the harm from happening in the first place? And I think that goes back to what a lot of folks have been saying around, you know, those resources and connecting people with, you know, housing and food resources and food security and self-determination. And um, yeah, just makes me think about all the work you all are doing and how it directly ties to like um, addressing harm and and how we do that. So our last question um, is really kind of tying into what you already talked about. And maybe we can spend like a few minutes each on this so we can answer some questions from Q&A. Um, but 
you know, the prison industrial complex is, is sold as a solution, um, that we turn to for all of our problems. Right. Um, and, but we believe in a reality and believe in reality that communities, um, need specific non-carceral solutions. And you both have talked about that. Um, can you share anything else about how you assess community problems and work to build solutions? And I think this question, my hope is like maybe to hear some of those practical things, because I imagine for so many of us who are even thinking about how to do this work for the first time, like what are some of those practical um, either resources or skills or models? And, you know, we don't have to recreate these things, right? Like how can we learn from each other in those ways? So yeah, do either of you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I'm yeah, happy to- Yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Huh, I think, so and something that I wanted to build on kind of to the last question too, um, is the importance of, you know, having a process and a plan for when harm comes up. And I think that can, you know, that should happen on like, an interpersonal level, on an organizational level, but really like taking time to think out what does happen when harm happens. Like, what are the next steps? What discussions happen? Who's facilitating those discussions? What resources need, you know, embark on a process of um, addressing this harm and doing again, I mean, back to like the preventative work, but we really, like doing that work in advance. And I feel like I've experienced and seen a lot of um, like organizations where like harm happens or communities where harm happens. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, it happened. Like we need to address it. And we know we don't want to do it carcerally, but we also didn't really have a plan so that we're trying to figure it out as we go. And, you know, I understand why that happens, but I think there is just so much power in like taking time to map out like, okay, this is what's, what, what, these are the infrastructure that we have so that we can put in place that we will like put in place when, when harm happens, because you know, harm like will happen. Um, and I think the other part of that too is like giving yourself time to actually address harm, which is something that I feel like I see people just sort of be like, oh, we, we got to address this and then jump on to the next thing in either because they feel like something else is more important, whether that's like the stake of the work or whether that's just, you know, somebody's personal survival. Um, and yeah, I feel like specifically in like collective collaborative spaces, you may have to stop what you're doing to really actually figure, um, figure it out. And again, like, I feel like it's sort of the same mechanisms of white supremacy, capitalism, ableism that, you know, tell us to just kind of go, go, go. And that taking time is somehow unproductive or somehow like harmful. But I think it is one of the ways that you actually, you know, address harm is to give space to address harm. Um, yeah. And I feel like with, you know, assessing community problems as well, I think you've got to think about also how are you fostering a community of accountability? Like it's, you know, hard to hold somebody else accountable in a non-coercive way. Like people are accountable to themselves. And ideally part of that accountability is also, you know, if I'm accountable to myself, like that means I'm also accountable to the people that I'm in community with. Um, but, you know, when I say like foster an environment of accountability, I think the things that I'm thinking are sort of those things that we've named so far around, like what our survival needs are, right? Like somebody isn't going to address the harm that they've done or feel like they can, um, or if they've been harmed, like feel like they can even enter like some sort of process if they don't feel safety or security. So I guess, you know, we've said this so many times, but like really going back to like, okay, um, 
Yeah. What things do you need in order for you to feel like you have the energy to embark on that? And then how as a collective, as a community, can we make sure that those things are in place? Um, Yeah. So I feel like proactively developing a process, you know, giving it time and then also, you know, fostering that environment of accountability, I guess, by like ensuring the needs are being met, which is hard to do in this world. But um, yeah, also comes with that like kind of imaginative building that we've been talking about on this call. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I often think about the question I arrive at with a lot of harm is like, what could have existed? Like, what did that person need to not have harmed? And what do they need now not to harm again? Right. And it's not, you know, I think that goes along with, you know, the work to support the person harmed. But I think it helps us think about like what could have existed that like maybe could have prevented that from even happening to start with. Um, Marianne, would you like to add anything for we have we have like two questions I think we could get through pretty quickly. But if you want to add something to that, we can move to those questions. So like on the like the full like topic about abolishing um, the um, industrial like complex of the jail complex is like humans like need they they need to meet their basic needs in a human way, in a, a human way. It's no way that a human cannot cause harm with it's been, when it's been exploited and when it's not being given the time to live. So I think that's what we call for more resources to mental health, to culture, to, you know, things that will will um, prevent communities to become violence because we, violence comes from a scarcity, from these imposed poverty that uh, or people. So like for me, addressing needs um, asking, assessing what, what, where, where people come from and use equity lenses to make sure that everybody has the support uh, needed. I think it's one way to go forward to abolish all these punitive system and, and this exploit, exploitative system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'll read the two questions and maybe we can blend them together a little bit. But one question is, how did you get your community that's been relying on police to reduce reliance on law enforcement? Um, and I would maybe say like any policing um, and agree to participating in the projects that you both are working with. And then the other piece is like, who do members call when there's an emergency? And I kind of see this as like, getting to like, how did you shift people to like thinking differently, right? How did you actually get them to start taking different action and engage? So we've only got a few minutes. I don't want to go too much over time, but maybe if you all could give a couple, a minute, a minute and a half to that each, that'd be great. Um, Miriam, you want to go? Sure, I can. I think uh, one way that we have doing here, it's like a fight the narrative that the system put onto us. For example, with immigration, you know, like get the people together to hear each other and to hear hear their truths, not from like the extreme media, but from from the people who is living the situation. It's um, one way that that we have been able to shift minds. And the other one is who do we call? We have like we built our own community line. We don't call the police. We call the line first, and we we speak and bring the resources first. And the last thing we want to talk is to the police. 
Yeah, so um, yeah, that's really so amazing. I feel like I'm learning so much from you. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the cultural shift, like the question of, you know, how do you get people to divest from the police? I think it, it can be easier than you think. I feel like police, they don't serve us right now. They bring a lot of violence and that is often easy to identify. Um, and I think, you know, it is, there are really clear links of how policing actively hurts people. Um, and then I think with the second question, and I don't have specific examples, um, but I think one of the things that I hear in that question around, like, who do you call is, you know, kind of a, an ask for, like, again, that sort of like alter, like obvious alternative answer. And I think it really depends. And I think they're going to be, they're, going to be need to be a lot of different interventions that are um, offered in response to the um, prison industrial complex, which is a very lazy way of addressing harm, violent, but lazy. And I think abolition, you know, is a project of imagination. And so I feel like it, it might be some work to think about, okay, who are we calling when someone is in a mental health crisis? Who are we calling when somebody is bleeding out? Who are we calling when someone is facing interpersonal violence? And the answers to those questions are going to be, you know, different and likely specific to the needs of the people involved and the communities involved. And again, there will be, you know, probably helpful, ideally helpful resources and, and tools that you can go to to help answer those questions. But yeah, it'll probably take a little creativity and, and, and thinking through first. Oh, I think Corey, you're muted. Thank you. I just caught that. Um, uh, yeah, that call, like who to call one is such a common one. And I know that I often say to folks, like it, it's to me, it's more, how do I make myself someone that others can call? You know, it's like, how do I think about like, how can I skill up and then be someone who can be called for the, for a reason. And I may not be able to be the one who can be called for everything, but instead of thinking, who else am I going to like hand this off to? Like, how do I become part of a community where I can be looped in to be supporting others? Um, and that I think shift alone can be a huge one. Um, so thank you both. I want to just kind of recap some things that I hear heard today as we wrap up. And, you know, I think one is just that there's so much to learn from each other. And like, I learned so much today. And I imagine there's people who like may not have been familiar with either of your work that now know. And just to think of all the different, you know, models and um, projects and things that exist out there that we can learn from. We don't have to build it from scratch every time, right? We, we should be learning from each other and and really be thinking about, you know, what does the situation need and how do we look to each other to help inform those, you know, assessment and decisions. Um, and that community-based safety isn't a one-fit solution, right? Like it's really going to look, and I think Salon, you really, you know, talked a lot about this. It's not going to look like one thing is always going to work. We have to be in response to the people involved and, and really think about like what we want to build. Um, you know, and and some of it is just, you know, it's maybe we don't need to call a lot, create a line. Right. Maybe we need housing. Maybe we need food. Maybe we need self-determination. And that, you know, that work to do that is actually going to create more impact than like how is like running a line. Right. So, you know, how do we think about like what are the actual tangible, practical resources that, you know, 
address the thing that we haven't ever thought of addressing in that way. Um, and, you know, I go back to what we talk a lot about at CR, which is dismantle, change, and build. And I think we've talked a lot about how we have to be dismantling the prison industrial complex while building, you know, and while changing, right? Like changing who we are in relationship to um, how we want to be and who we want to be with each other. So thank you all so much. Um, I just want to, you know, appreciate the the work you have done and will be doing i'm sure in the future and thank you both a um, couple quick housekeeping pieces um you know this is part five of a series and so there's four other parts you can watch um that haymarket has on their youtube so i would recommend checking those out um cr has a page on addressing account uh, on accountability and addressing harms so if you go to our website i think those links will get put in the chat too um, and CR just released a um, uh, abolishing police toolkit that references, you know, so much of what you both have talked about, too. So really want to plug that and plug both your work. So we've put some links in the chat um, so that people can um, follow you, find you, you know, find find your work to be able to learn from you all even more. So. Um, thank you both. I wish we had another hour because I have so many things I would love to hear more from both of you. Um, but I just want to thank Haymarket. I want to thank um, Southerners on New Ground to help put this event on and Nia also who couldn't be here tonight um, and our ASL and interpreters who um, have been such an in integral piece of this event as well and all of the labor that went into making this. So thank you everyone and I will wrap us here. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.